Hello and welcome to another episode of Tajin. My name is Graham Cornwell and I'm a PhD candidate in history, Georgetown, and the editor of Tajin. We're recording today in Lexington, Kentucky, my hometown, at the University of Kentucky, where our guest, Dr. Karen Rignall, is Assistant Professor of Community and Leadership Development in the College of Agriculture, Food, and Environment. Karen earned her PhD from UK, and her work touches on a fascinating mix of fields, migration studies, peasant studies, issues of race, political economy, and environment. She has recently published, uh, been very prolifically published, uh, three articles, Land and Politics of Custom in a Moroccan Oasis Town, uh, an Anthropological Quarterly, The Labor of Agrodiversity in a Moroccan Oasis from the Journal of Peasant Studies, and Solar Power, State Power, and the Politics of Energy Transition in Pre-Saharan Morocco from Environment and Planning A in 2015. And she's working on an upcoming monograph, An Elusive Common, Land and Rurality in a Moroccan Oasis. We're delighted to have her on the podcast with us today. Karen, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So, Karen, your work looks at how customary and traditional institutions and practices uh, have been used to challenge longstanding exclusionary politics or practices, especially maybe as it relates to land tenure and agriculture, focusing on uh, what we might call the pre-Saharan Morocco. Can you start by telling us a little bit about the area that you study, the region, maybe its relationship to other parts of the country, um, sort of what makes it unique? Pre-Saharan Morocco gets its um, moniker, as it were, because it's uh, this transitional space between the hyper-arid Sahara and the uh, the Atlas Mountains. And it's transitional in many ways, not only environmentally, but, but culturally and historically and politically. It's a marginalized region um, with tenuous links to the historical sort of central state, um, even though that state has various variously been located, um, you know, in Marrakesh, Fez, and Rabat. So what's interesting about the particular Oasis Valley that I study in the region as a whole is this difficult and at times very resistant uh, relationship to central governance. Um, and, and so many governance institutions at, at differing layers from the local sort of community level on to regional confederations that manage land have historically also managed all aspects of governance, and that gets thrown up into question during the colonial and then post-colonial periods. In, in terms of the population and the, the demographics, um, and what are some key features to the region? Um, I mean, so specifically we're talking about Mgoon or this kind of oasis, oasis series of oasis communities, yeah, that are uh, kind of between the Atlas and, and the Sahara. Um, what, what makes this area unique or or maybe even emblematic um, in terms of its population, demographic, demographic change over the past uh, series of decades? Absolutely. As you may imagine, populations have been concentrated around the oasis valleys and uh, some of which are linked to, to rivers and some of which are linked to sources. It's, it's one of the most diverse places in terms of its population in Morocco, both racially and um, Kind of ethnically, if you could, if you could say that, it's a Berber area. Um, Tashalhet is spoken. It's Amazigh, but yet within those categories, um, how one gets defined racially has shifted over time. So they, 
there has definitely been a longstanding history of racial hierarchies uh, in which black populations that are variously called and, and labeled so are indigenous. They're not necessarily um, immigrants or slaves, even though Morocco does have a history of, of slavery and slave populations. Uh, these are populations that are from the oases and have historically been indentured uh, in some form or another, usually as sharecroppers. Although even here, that relationship of indenture uh, can vary over time. And in the particular very where I wor- valley where I worked, uh, indeed there were uh, racially black populations who had been indentured, but some had also been freed um, in various ways throughout history. We see big demographic changes, however, in the 20th century, and particularly after uh, independence in 1956, when large uh, numbers of people start to migrate to Europe and elsewhere in Morocco. And that transformation is one of the key things that I'm interested in my work. This migration is primarily the black community in within within Mgoon or, or these valleys, or it's, or it's sort of all-encompassing? It's all-encompassing to a large extent. Um, you could think of the uh, transformation as being particularly marked for formerly subjugated groups, and to, uh, in some measures, as some people described it, in the first waves of migration, some of the wealthier high-status groups opted not to go uh, because they were doing fine. As a general rule, though, as soon as uh, cash starts to flow back into the valley and, uh, in fact, the sort of economic and environmental changes that take place in the area in the course of the post-independent period make it difficult to earn a living as, uh, as pastoralists or through livestock production, even those wealthier groups um, and those uh, sort of coated white Imazarin groups, those Berber groups, um, they quickly start to migrate in the same numbers. And so I would have oral histories where people are describing, in fact, uh, having worked in the mines alongside people of a very different status. And um, overlords would have been working next to former sharecroppers. And so everyone pretty much ends up migrating, although some experience more transformation in their status than others. So that, I mean, I guess that helps us sort of sketch out very basically um, the the social hierarchy within this community or these communities. Um, a, a landowning elite, primarily Amazir, and a uh, maybe primarily black or at least coded that way, um, uh, sharecropping, um, tenant farming, underclass, at least historically. Historically, yeah. I think part of what made this a complicated issue, as race always is, is that it's the, the categories are fluid and changing, as is exploitation. And so I don't really think about this work as being specifically about race. And it is more so, I believe, in other valleys. So the work of Hussein el for instance, I think the, the kind of racial divisions that he describes in the Ziz Valley elsewhere um, in the southeast of Morocco in, in Arashidia are slightly more rigid than what we see in the place that I work because I also encountered Amazir sharecroppers who were also indentured but were not racially black. And so to me this starts to raise kind of deeper questions about labor and exploitation and the value of land as both um, uh, an asset and a, a form of capital and as a, as a political signifier. 
So, I mean, let's then turn and talk more about, about land specifically and, and the way people work it and, and manage it and own it. Um, how has migration shaped some of these previously subjugated populations, sharecropping populations, access to land in, in the valley that you're, you're studying? Well, I find an interesting mixture of a commodification of land. Oh, land does become commoditized in certain respects so that people who are selling land because they no longer have the sharecrop labor to work it are selling it to former sharecroppers who now have the cash to buy it. And at the most simple level, that's the biggest change you see. Uh, and that is something that other scholars have noted for, for similar oases in the southeast. I started to see, though, uh, 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 an interesting series of changes related to that, though, that are also about people's investment in land as a new kind of resource that um, holds value uh, in terms of an investment, but also can produce income in ways that it didn't used to in the past. There are obviously real constraints to expanding farming in this area. It's really land rich but water scarce and in many respects it's not even land rich because uh, various issues make some of the land difficult to farm but people are investing in land in new ways and it's it's acquiring an economic value that it never had so some groups are able to use their remittances they're buying land they're starting to plant olive trees and almond trees and they're making money that way but everyone is starting to see land as an investment uh, that is going to be important for their economic as well as political status. So this community that you, you focus on, Mgun, um, is, I mean, to, to call it a town I, seems a, a little too simple. We, we've got uh, maybe a central community, but then also smaller, newer villages that are attached to it economically, politically. Um, and... I guess I'm I'm curious how just sort of to expand on this on what the what the space of of this place looks like. How has have these changing relationships to land and tenure and and ownership changed the the physical space of these towns um, and and sort of villages that are that are part of a network. One of the central themes of of my book and that's emerging out of this long-term research is that all of these changes are are, are really visible on the landscape. Um, They're visible in the way that people use their labor to create land, to literally bring new land under production. They're visible in the way people enclose land by uh, building adobe walls and extending towns and building housing. They're visible in the way women claim land by, uh, by putting out shrubs and and bushes that they're dried bushes that they're going to use for fire and using that to claim progressively more land so you see these changes very much in the landscape um but how has that you know changed the the sort of configuration of the whole valley it's it's been pretty significant so there's a market town called Klatmguna it's you know maybe 15,000 people now it what it was essentially created by the french in the early 30s and you have a series of villages maybe 25 that run up and down the valley i did a regional ethnography i i went up and down the valley but you have these these villages satellite villages that are essentially bedroom communities not unlike suburban new jersey where people are um uh, riding their bikes or coming into town 
to work in their in the cafe or at the bank and then go home and are farming their land in order to produce tomatoes and, and olives for the market. And so there is an entire kind of political economy, uh, what some have called a migration economy, but I think is more complex than that. Uh, it speaks to efforts to maintain a kind of political and social and economic sense of autonomy for this uh, for this region um, that I think is is also interesting for Morocco because it's not it's not this way everywhere. I think in other parts of Morocco, you've seen migrants leave um, and essentially depopulate uh, the sort of agrarian communities from which they came. Right. Uh, so I want to, I guess, with that in mind, there's a you, you mentioned something about kind of making new land or, or, or um, the, way, the way people sort of mark off territory and, and new lands have been created. There's a fascinating story in... in um, in one of your articles, a uh, little anecdote about Haj Hussain, sort of, and and his relationship with Haj Lu. These are these are two men. Haj Hussain is a uh, member of what we call a landowning elite, or at least a traditional kind of landowning elite, who has been very I don't know proactive in bringing new irrigation channels to new lands, develop basically developing new lands for agriculture. Um, in a in a pretty ambitious way, but these lands have um, basically made more farmland available for this new sh- group of former sharecroppers, uh, of which Hajlu is one, um, to sort of own land. And so you, you talk about how he's not just Haj Hussein isn't just making this land, but he's making Hajlu uh, into a new kind of social status, connecting the two. How do these two groups? interact? How do they feel about these these changes that are, um, these economic changes, and sort of where, what kind of political spaces do they do they meet in? Well, I, I think there are resentments, there are um, uh, sort of conflicts that sometimes percolate to the surface and sometimes don't. But over time, I've become more and more wary of thinking about them uh, as sort of corporate groups as racialized categories that um, self-identify as such because I have found that alliances over time, allegiances and, and conflicts over time have shifted according to um, not only one's racial category or one's past in relationship to former um, dominant groups, but also in terms of how uh, one's status has evolved over time. Race is important, um, but it is a category that is complex and taken apart and reconfigured. And so over time, my emphasis has been more on the the different kinds of social relationships that that labor has produced and that who becomes irrelevant in the new kind of political landscape is basically about who has continued to labor in this community versus who has left. And so someone like the, the example that you raise, Hajj Hussain's family, uh, a very well-placed, high-status family. All of this uh, Hajj's sons are now uh, high government officials in Marrakesh and Rabat. They are doing very well. And yet the fact that they are not implicated in the day-to-day life of this community means that they are n- no longer residents in ways that even other migrants who spend much of their lives away are because they're not politically 
invested in this community and because they no longer work the land. And so that has become a sort of central, I think, feature of one's political status is what is your investment in the land and in the politics of of this area? And if you leave, not only physically, but politically and in terms of your labor, then you're no longer as relevant as you used to be. So what are the what are the political bodies that um, that these people, uh, not groups, but but individuals or, or families, maybe, you know, engage in? Um, I mean, I guess I'm I'm curious about how decisions and and disputes over land itself, because there surely are some, um, especially as new communal lands kind of move to private ownership or some some semblance of private ownership. How are these uh, disputes mediated? Where are they mediated? This is a central question of how we understand rural political life, I think, now. And I think it's not been a question that a lot of Middle East and North African scholars have been asking of the contemporary period because for many reasons. But but what happens is a a lot of conflict and struggle over how rural life is going to be governed. And so... uh, Individuals, groups, communities are working through very pluralist systems of governance. Uh, They understand the importance of the central state's presence because the Moroccan state is, in many respects, omnipresent. The Ministry of the Interior is, is very closely monitoring and working through local government officials. And so someone like the Hajj, someone like... uh, politically ambitious, up-and-coming former sharecroppers, they're all going to build alliances with the local government, with the communes, with the Ministry of of Interior officials. They're going to build these sort of patronage relationships that are very important. So they understand the importance of working through the state at the same time that customary regimes for managing land and managing communities are also still very vibrant. And people engage with these pluralist systems of governance, uh, making different claims on them, but also playing them off one another and negotiating through them so that the political landscape in this kind of Oasis Valley, and I'm going to argue in, in much of rural Morocco, is about negotiating these plural systems of governance, um, some of which may be coded as traditional, but are in fact being kind of renegotiated in ways that we can see in the scholarship even on sub-Saharan Africa and some of the interesting work that's coming out now on on customary governance in sort of southern and eastern Africa. So that's a that's a good transition into talking about custom and 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 um maybe kind of with a capital C. I mean, this is a really important concept uh, in your work. Um, I mean, for me, as I read your work, custom for you doesn't necessarily refer to, I mean, definitely doesn't refer to doing things the way they've always been done. It still involves some recognition of established you know, practices or institutions, um, and it, maybe even a use of those practices or institutions. But it's, but it's different. So, I mean, how do former sharecroppers, um, for example, sort of instrumentalize custom um, a, a, as a concept or or customary institutions as concepts um, for their own benefit? Yeah, I think uh, when we think of in this context, you're, you're right, custom is, is, is not simply one's customs as in a sort of quaint old sense of what anthropologists do. Here it really does refer in many respects to um, uh, almost a colonial construct. 
a certain category of law and practice that institutionalizes governance, uh, whether it's of natural resources or um, or of local communities. And that's an artificial distinction in many ways because uh, historically, when you think of land governance, it's always been about governing people um, and, and territories through people and vice versa. So custom here um, becomes a, a tool, a sort of performative, um, a performative instrument for different groups to position themselves as gatekeepers, to close off access to resources for certain groups. It allows you to legitimize uh, different actions and exclusions that you can take uh, in reference to important resources like land and water. So invoking custom, in this sense, who has the right to land or who has the right to water, can be a way of, in fact, um, cutting off those resources from the market and increasing their value uh, for you. Uh, it's a mode of exclusion. So, yeah, so, I mean, you, you have this great line, I think, uh, where you say that the, the productivity of custom may stem from its indeterminacy rather than its historical persistence. It's really a, a hybrid sort of custom combined with a variety of, of other things um, uh, that that seems effective. I guess I still want to get at what what these customary practices look like. Like, are there is there a group of people that gets together that are elected, or simply the oldest members of their family, or, or something of that nature? Yeah, the the one that I'm particularly interested in, the institution that I'm particularly interested in is collective land governance, a council uh, that used to be involved in community governance generally, a jma. Um, and those would be councils that would be comprised of Imazarin or Amazir um, notables. They would be elected uh, historically, but only from the white Berber groups. And so there was a sort of certain level of democracy, not unlike early American democracy. Um, but that what would happen is a, a collective governance of land. Now, this is... I think the really interesting piece of this is that uh, this council uh, and other informal ways in which notables would, would govern land, so through perhaps um, uh, the irrigation manager, that institution, uh, and uh, other managers of collective resources, uh, they would also have authority over private land as well. Uh, not in the sense of, of, of its disposition. You have private property, but it's essentially an authority that keeps people's land use uh, in kind of collective management system. And so what it does is it uh, establishes penalties, for instance, if you uh, cross over into someone else's land. These are private lands, but this is a collective regime for, for governing it. And so it's about establishing sort of access to the commons, but also thinking of private land in, a, in, in common terms. That's the main in institution that I'm interested in. In terms of, I mean, the way people in these communities make claims towards this um, or within this this customary um, uh, land um, 
regime or, or, or councils. Uh, you have a, another sort of fascinating anecdote. Um, it's the, the case of Khalid uh, in, in your article in the Journal of Peasant Studies. Khalid is a guy from Casablanca whose family he believes has some right to land in the village. He's never lived in, in the village um, or rather in the valley. Um, he returns, he sort of storms into this this meeting area and, and speaking Arabic, which you note that people in the area would not have done unless they, they had to for some kind of official reason. And he tries to make a variety of different claims or, or tries to um, exercise, I guess, his, his claim to the land in a variety of different ways. Um, none of them are particularly effective, it seems. Um, he makes a claim kind of through lineage or his his family's sort of kind of traditional right to the land. He makes this claim by trying to build uh, some structure, a wall, a wall on the on the land. What are, I mean, and, and this is all tied up in what you call rights talk and how rights talk or, or the, the claiming of rights is, is actually not a particularly effective way that people have, have uh, um, used a, a customary regime um, to, to their own benefit or, or to make some kind of um, gain to get past this exclusion. Why do you think, why do you think that is? I, I have been really fascinated with this issue of when people invoked rights and when they didn't. So the particular case that you're talking about, uh, a sort of urban and educated man is, is, it, is goading people to, to demand their rights and thinks about it in terms of his right to land. It's not that people are unaware of this kind of talk, but it's not a motivating one. And yet we also see in the broader... Um, in the broader discussion around land and food sovereignty for sort of agrarian um, uh, agrarian regions around the world, there's a strong investment in having people demand their rights. But when you look at what discourses are mobilizing and are effective, it's not always a rights-based one. And there's a lot of diversity here um, in rural Morocco in terms of how people are invoking rights um, or not. So there are many um, sort of rights-based movements in Morocco, particularly around Berber rights. And more and more, those are being linked to land. And so there are discussions around land tenure that focus on rights in a way that we would recognize, say, as part of the land sovereignty and food sovereignty movement. But what I also found is really interesting is that most of people's sort of investment of political and sort of emotional resources in in this particular valley were not in that kind of discourse, but in in fact in creating a sort of social – a kind of a social equal – you know, I I, I hesitate to say equilibrium, but a social peace that involves a certain kind of accommodation, a certain kind of – of consensus building and a, 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 a networks of reciprocity that ensured people had access to land and that we could mobilize our shared connection to land so that everybody could retain their connection to the Tamazir, you know, their home. What that did mean is that discourse didn't always match practice because some people were, in fact, excluded. But I think, in general, people found that you know, by invoking custom, we also are creating an environment in which we all live together um, and do so in a way that everyone benefits from. So I'm, I'm curious. I mean, this is a, a co- sort of complicated 
um, I mean, it's, it's definitely complicated, but in, in practice, it, it seems like there are, I don't know, rules of the game that are not very explicitly stated, um, that somebody like Khaled who comes in and, and attempts to under, maybe understand these through a particular set of rules of the game, um, is left, is left out or, or loses or something. What are the challenges for you, the ethnographer, the anthropologist, um, making sense of this this world, and maybe with especially with respect to custom and, and trying to think about it in terms of custom, customary, traditionalist is another term that you use um, as opposed to traditional. Um, how do you how do you try to see things as related to custom, but obviously um, constantly evolving or in motion. I focus on what these practices do. What what work do they do for people? Um, and I think about them in terms of how people understand them, how people explain them, but also in a in a in a sort of very perhaps straightforward way. Um, what are the outcomes of people's mobilization of different um, justifications and in different institutions and in different practices? And so this is where my co- commitment to a political economy analysis, I think, helps. There is a lot that I am undoubtedly missing. Um, I, I'm sure that I can live there for years on end and not catch many of those subtleties. But I feel like over time I've been able to um, to capture some of the tensions um, and some of the productive tensions uh, between what people say they're doing, how, how, but how they're also actually mobilizing these different institutions. And that's where you start to see, you know, the importance of a cultural understanding, too, that these are um, very performative invocations of, um, of you know, tradition and, and of the past. And when you hear people contradict themselves um, and their accounts of what, um, you know, how they govern land or or who has status in a, in a village, it's it's not about seeing that as a contradiction, but, but trying to get at what are they trying to present themselves as in the course of these narratives. So let's turn from, from there to, um, to talk about uh, what I see as sort of a key theme or concept. Um, I mean, I, I don't think you disagree. Um, and that's this idea of a, a re-peasantization, a re-emergent peasantry, uh, new rurality. Um, what, are these, what do these concepts mean to you? Um, this is not a concept that has a lot of currency in this region, um, Middle East or North Africa. Why, why is that? I think there are a number of reasons. There have historically uh, been some very committed scholars working um, in rural areas uh, of the Middle East and North Africa with a strong interest in kind of agrarian practice and, and agrarian change. Um, more recently, you don't see that quite as much. Morocco is a place that has had a consistent stream of sort of rurally-based anthropologists. But but you don't hear the word peasant said that much in contemporary work on the Middle East. And I, to me... Um, I'm less invested in the term than in thinking about what is it about rural life in, say, uh, Oasis, Morocco, that we can draw commonalities with to rural life in Central or South America or Sub-Saharan Africa, because many of the debates are similar. 
what is the future of uh, agrarian life, agrarian economies, when um, pressures on the commercial prospects for agriculture, especially small farmers, are so great, when environmental change makes it so difficult, when um, commercialization and commoditization of increasingly more aspects of the agricultural value chain make life very difficult for a small farmer. And so to me, uh, this is a pretty pessimistic strain of um, of work because by and large, we're pretty familiar with the incredible pressure on rural peasants, or if you don't like that term, on just um, uh, rural producers or, or or even rural residents, because uh, in fact, fewer people in in rural areas are relying exclusively on farming in the way they have. So this is a global question. I think, however, that there are cases and strains of work that are not necessarily seeing this in a teleological way as the the sort of final frontier and defeat for for neoliberal capitalism, that these are processes that rural communities negotiate and and have agency in. And so I think the example that I found is one that it's not an unequivocally great story, but one that shows, in fact, people creating new futures uh, for rural peasantry. It's not about the death of the peasantry, but an account of how peasant or agrarian life has changed and how people have been able to carve out some measure of autonomy and uh, and livelihood security and political security or political autonomy um, in, in rural areas in a way that maybe they hadn't even 40 or 50 years ago. So uh, maybe uh, people familiar with Morocco and maybe elsewhere in the region or, or the world might have an idea about large-scale monocultural enterprises, more and more Moroccans who are working on farms, working as laborers in these places, as opposed to this this uh, re-peasantization um, where people are getting access to their own land, producing um, for a peasant economy, but also for a, a, a broader market or series of markets. Um, so it's, it's kind of... Um, again, more than one thing at once. What is the state's role in this? Um, you mentioned that, you mentioned the presence of, of um, interior ministry, um, of, of communal government, meaning government of, the, of a commune. Um, but how much is, uh, how much is of these changes are sort of in terms of re-peasantization are, are understood, are, um, cultivated, uh, I don't know, in resistance or, or in opposition to the state, or, or maybe in concert with it? I would say that uh, the kinds of investments people have made in their land and in, in their rural communities have been beside the state, in, you know, despite the state. Uh, I wouldn't call it resistance per se. I, I, I don't know that we can um, simply ascribe a a sort of coherent political um, objective to it um, in any cohesive sense. But I was struck, for instance, um, when I uh, was talking to one quite successful farmer 
and asked him about uh, the role of the Ministry of Agriculture and agricultural subsidies and the state in, in supporting his work and the work of other farmers. And he said that they don't do anything. You know, the state only comes to take, take, take. And there is a sense in which um, we are going to invest in ourselves and we can't rely on anybody else. So, for instance, people don't use agricultural credit here. Um, by and large, they can't qualify. Uh, but beyond that, they would rather use credit from institutions and people they know. There's a sense of suspicion about uh, formal financial institutions and formal state institutions. So you use them. You understand that you can't avoid them. Um, but certainly there is a, a sense of suspicion and uh, a sense of distancing from the state. And beyond that, there is a complete official neglect of agriculture in these areas. So I don't hold up this example of uh, people actually securing a measure of, um, of sort of autonomy as a, an example of how small farming can grow to become the, you know, the solution to Morocco's rural development ills, because in certain respects, this was a possibility carved out of official neglect. Because in fact, when it's, this is an area that's not appealing for large capital investments, you don't then, you, you don't then have foreign investors or well-placed Moroccan investors coming up to buy up land and, and establish industrial concerns there. So it's a mixed it's a mixed story in that sense, is that you have to be too poor to qualify for government subsidies. You know, minimum acreage or hectareage that you have to own to even get a government loan is usually 50 hectares. The largest landowner in the oasis that I studied was two hectares. So there are no statistics. These are entire sort of farming systems that are completely off the official radar screen. So it's been largely neglected. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, it, maybe people who study a lot of Moroccan agriculture, or at least historically have studied it, have looked I mean, geographically further west, further north in the country, um, to relatively fertile plains where um, where things like wheat and grain and, and citrus, maybe further south, can be grown really productively. This is sort of marginal land um, to some extent, but but also kind of outside the the main development efforts of the protectorate and, and, and in terms of agriculture and maybe um, and maybe the the independent Moroccan state as well. It brings me to a, a passage I really enjoyed from your article in the Journal of Peasant Studies. You say, the viability of peasant agriculture does not necessarily rest in protecting tradition, but in recognizing the ambivalent relationship peasant farmers may have with that tradition. Um, I mean, these are real innovators, in, in a way, um, people who are, um, and I think maybe for those unfamiliar with kind of the region and and state development efforts in that region relative to other forms of economic production, I don't know, maybe tourism, um, might not be familiar with uh, the degree to which some of the people you're studying are, are innovating or are really creatively using the institutions at their disposal to make what what is kind of a new economic um a new means of economic production for for them and their families there's an interesting tension i think in how we regard the diversified small farmer in that sense so uh in an oasis context it's not unlike a highland central american context um in the sense that what you have are farmers who have uh farmed small plots 
uh, perhaps intensively very diversified, and yet, um, according to modernist and productivist notions of agriculture, this is not productive and it's not modern agriculture. When you actually look at this uh, this sort of farming system, it, it really is, in fact, very, very productive because you need to measure it in the right way. Um, so yes, these people have been innovators. They've had to in order to farm in an oasis and a very harsh sort of agroecology over the past few centuries. Yet, when we look at some of the food sovereignty um, sort of perspectives and discourse, it it can often romanticize that um, that sense of innovation, and that in fact all of the um, all of the innovation we need is is already right there with with the farmer. Um, that also doesn't recognize the fact that um, many of those farming systems were predicated on um, pretty stark inequalities and exclusions. Um, many people in those small farming communities may not have had access to the same kinds of opportunities. And so when you actually look at farmer practice, they may be less invested in retaining this diversified farming system that um, agroecologists really love to see. They don't have the same nostalgia. They want to keep farming to make a living, um, and they're interested in figuring out what works now. And so that's, that's what I found is that there's, a, there's not much nostalgia for the way farming used to be because farming used to be based on indentured labor. Um, it never used to provide completely. Um, no one was ever self-sufficient in the oases. So the idea that you would harshly judge contemporary farming because it's, um, it, it can't provide for all of people's food needs is a misplaced critique because it never did. The last famine in this region was in the 40s. People don't want to go back to that time. Um, so yeah, they're they're not nostalgic. It's a good reminder. I think you point out in, in your work that even some of the wealthiest landowning families are just at the poverty level in, for Morocco as a country, or what I guess the state assesses as the poverty level. Um, so these aren't—I mean, these aren't particularly wealthy or productive, even in, in the best case. And you mentioned about the, the fifty hectares compared to the, the largest landowner in the region only having two. Um, Another area of focus is, is in your work is trying to differentiate, and I think this gets to what you were saying before, differentiate within peasant societies. So not necessarily seeing a, a peasant society as, I don't know, different from an urban or a town, but rather looking at um, and, and not uh, painting with too broad a brush about the actual inhabitants and members or participants with, within the society. They have very uh, different levels of income and access and that maybe the the scholarship has, has previously neglected the kind of differentiation within as opposed to um, differentiation between peasant societies and, and other societies. Do you think that's an accurate portrayal well, of scholarship? I, 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 I think there has been historically an understanding um, – depending on what strain of sort of rural scholarship you're coming from, that indeed there's a lot of rural differentiation. And in fact, if you sort of look back to some of the um, sort of Middle East scholarship on um, on um, patron client ties, for instance, there's a strong recognition of it. I think, though, we always have to revisit that and how those 
exclusions um, and inequalities are either reproduced or challenged, and how resistance to inequalities can produce new exclusions in the process. It's a dialectical relationship in, in, in sort of my conception of how it's worked in, in this Moroccan context. And so um, when you look at that as a as a, a multifaceted process that isn't simply about capitalist transformation, then you not only see the role that immersion and sort of national and global markets may have in these exclusions, you also try start to understand the complexity of how people engage and manipulate that engagement with, with broader markets. And that, I think, is something that we can always use more of. <laughs> case um, where you're studying migration has kind of migration to Moroccan cities formerly maybe to European cities or to Europe has provided the funds that have given more and more people access to land and and kind of created this new peasantry is this a theme a pattern that is happening elsewhere in Morocco that you're aware of is this unique to the valley well this is a pattern that's happening throughout the world and I think that's why I'm I'm interested in drawing links between what's happening in, you know, my small corner of the world, not my small corner, but the place where I've been devoting the past few years to, in fact, what, you see, what you've what you been seeing in rural Egypt, in rural Southeast Asia, in rural um, Latin America, is that uh, the importance of remittances as a driver of rural change and agrarian change is pretty well recognized, although some of the more sustained attention to it actually is coming from economists. And um, to a large extent, uh, scholars are looking at this in terms of the impact of return migration or remittances on all aspects of, of, of rural life. So this is something that, yes, is very prominent throughout rural Morocco, but it manifests itself differently. It becomes very difficult to talk in a theoretical sense about the impact of migration and migration remittances on rural farming communities because you cannot generalize. Even from one valley to the next in Morocco, the dynamics of how um, this influx of capital and cash affects a rural society is going is going to be ex- just extremely diverse and different. And um, what we want to try to do is start to draw lessons. I think that you can think more generally about how does different kinds of engagement with labor and other global markets uh, shift the relative priorities of rural producers and their aspirations and their capacities. And that's when we stop thinking about, is agriculture going to survive here? Is the peasantry dying off? And you start to think more in terms of how do we see this rural area as transforming? Um, what are its possibilities? And it's it's a more open-ended question then. Right, because as you show, I mean, rather than just becoming sort of a shell of a community because of this out-migration to cities and, and to Europe over the past few decades, uh, there's a lot of dynamic change going on all the time uh, in the physical space of, of the town and, and its sort of related villages um, in the fields that are, you know, sort of irrigation is being extended to, 
um, and obviously in the livelihoods of, of these people themselves. Karen, I want to thank you uh, so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. I really appreciate the chance to talk about this issue, and I look forward to any feedback. You, uh, I remember the first time I think we met, you said to me, you know, not enough people study the southeast. Everybody wants to study the north of Morocco and, and not the southeast. And I think this is great. This is maybe the first podcast we've had that has really uh, dealt with this region, which is uh, an interesting one that a lot of people visit and and have probably many people without knowing it have probably passed right through Kalab Maguna and en route from the Sahara to Marrakesh or, um, or, or points beyond uh, without knowing it. And so I think this is um, hopefully very timely and interesting for our listeners. Thank you again. Thank you. Stay tuned for more uh, from Tajine and uh, the Ottoman History Podcast. You can also be sure to check out tajin.ottomanhistorypodcast.com our website for bibliographic information from this podcast um, as well as a a range of posts and photographs and images um, from North Africa. Thanks.